Good morning. How are you this morning? It's great to come back home. You see, I was born in Orlando a long time ago in the last century. Actually, the last millennium, right? And anyway, it's great to come back uh, to this coast and be here in a place that I love very much. And it's a privilege to be able to share with you this morning uh, our Sabbath school lesson. Now, when they sent me the email and said, would you teach the lesson? I'm thinking, oh man, what's it going to be about? They said, it's going to be about Paul. And I think you do have that in your wheelhouse a little bit about Paul. And I thought, well, but what about Paul? You know, there's a lot of different aspects about Paul. And so I was kind of kept checking the website, you know, to see what was going to be the Sabbath school lesson. And they just don't give a lot of information out months ahead of time. And finally, at my, uh, the church I attend in Southern California, I saw the lesson, the book of Acts. And I looked in and can you believe what it was? The conversion of Paul. I said, wow, thank you, Lord. I know something about that, and there we have him, this beautiful statue, because 18 years ago, I had the privilege of actually filming the life of Paul on location. And I know some of you have seen that uh, around the world, and we went to six different countries filming, tracing the footsteps of Paul, and that image you just saw actually is from a church in Damascus. And there was something about that image that caught the ruggedness of Paul, you know? I don't know if they can bring it back up on the screen, but it's a, uh, you can just see the ruggedness of Paul and, 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 and he's not a soft guy because he's traveling. And, and, and how far would he travel? Now, I want to just see if some of you followed my Footsteps of Paul series on 3ABN or Hope Channel. Any idea how far he traveled? Over, you didn't do the, you didn't do the small group, you see? Over 13,000 miles. And it wasn't in United or American, right? Mostly by foot, sometimes by steamship, no. Sometimes by sailing ship, and that was even rougher because multiple shipwrecks. But we're getting ahead of our story, aren't we? And so we want to go back and look uh, at the story of Paul's conversion. And so we have a memory text. Let's see if we can, have you memorized it? Let's see if we memorized it. Go... This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And so that's the words we're going to hear in a little bit as we trace his story from Ananias, a disciple in Damascus. But go and you're going to proclaim my name to who? It was your memory text. To Gentiles and not only to Gentiles but to their, their kings. And would that happen? Of course it would. He'll even go before Nero a couple of times. And we think about people in Caesar's own household being converted. But would you notice there's something very interesting about the text. It didn't end there. Did you notice what the next phrase was? And to my people Israel. We think Paul's just the, the apostle to the Gentiles. But no, no, no. He had a message for God's people Israel as well. And he brings and unfolds the beautiful message of justification. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So the question is, who was this man? God chose him from all the believers to be his chosen instrument. Who was he? What prepared him for this position that he would have? What prepared him to evangelize both Gentiles and Jews? And so let's explore that this morning. I, uh, as we were filming the footsteps of Paul, I had the privilege of going uh, to all these places. I've been to most of them before, but uh, the year before I had pastors on tour and we were filming in Tarsus. And uh, we have this 
when I get to Tarsus, there's first century A.D. Main Street. We'll pull that up on the screen. First century A.D. Main Street. Can you imagine? Saul walked on that street as a little boy. Did he go to picnics with his mom and dad down by the river? I don't know, but he walked on that street. And the text is so interesting. I love the way the King James puts it. I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I always smile and say, you know what? They had a sign at the edge of town. Mean people stop. You can't come in. You got to check your meanness. That'd be a nice city to live in, right? No mean city. But uh, the other translations capture a little bit better. No ordinary city. A Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. What was so unusual about this city? No ordinary city, Saul would say, may be on trial. What was so special? Well, it's on the map because of its unique geography. Here we can see a map of the ancient world. You see Tarsus, you see the little green area. That's the low place. And it's there because it's, what, what was the province? He said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia. And so there's upper Cilicia and there's lower Cilicia. The green area where Tarsus is is lower or smooth Cilicia. And then there's upper Cilicia up in the mountains and beyond the mountains into the Anatolian plateau. And here it was very special because of its unique geography its unique geography. The mountains are snow-capped most of the year there. There's only one pass for 200 miles, and it's carved by this river that we see on the screen, the Sindus or the Cold River. It was so cold that when Alexander the Great marched through, he, he went swimming and caught pneumonia and nearly died. And so I've been swimming in the river, and it was pretty cold, I have to say. But here we can see a Roman bridge, because they, the, this was the only pass for 200 miles. So Alexander the Great marches through that pass. Mark Anthony marches through that pass. Everybody who was anybody with an army had to march through there, because it's the only way for 200 miles. Cilia, those of you in the medical field, Cilia, does that ring a bell? I remember doing the five-day plans years ago, and we had super cilia in our and our throat and so on, they would catch the tars and so on, and we'd tell people that's why you don't want to smoke, right? It's not very good. So it means hair. It's the Roman province of hair. How would you like to be from that, that place, huh? The Roman province of hair. In the Anatolian plateau in Cilicia, they developed a special breed of goat grown nowhere else in the world. And when you use that cilia or that goat hair for making your tent, it allowed smoke from your campfire to pass through, sunshine to stream through, and it repelled rain. It was the Gore-Tex fabric of the day. And there's one outlet for 200 miles, and it's at Tarsus. So I've often wondered, was Paul actually sewing tents, or was he a purveyor of Gore-Tex? Because he'd have the best connection in the world for the finest material in the world for making goat hair tents. And so... Saul, positioned from a cosmopolitan city, a city that was a center of Stoic philosophy. And now he's positioned with an income wherever he would travel, a purveyor of cilia or goat hair. And here we bring up one more slide. You can see what I was talking about. You see Tarsus and then you see Anatalia. You might remember Anat Anatalia is where Perga is. Remember what happened in Perga? something very significant. John Mark got nervous about what Paul and Barnabas were preaching 
and they went back to Jerusalem to Peter and to the others. You know what they were doing? They were baptizing Gentiles without making them become Jews. And it created a huge controversy in the church because some said you have to be a Jew to accept the Jewish Messiah. Paul and Barnabas said, no, no, no. This is bigger than Judaism. And so John Mark forsook them there at Antalya. But it's over 200 miles from Tarsus back to Antalya. And there's only one outlet for that goat hair. And Paul had that connection. And so, as I said, Alexander the Great marched through. Mark Anthony marches through. Mark Anthony actually makes it the headquarters of the Eastern Roman Empire. And it's here, you can see the mountains off in the distance, still with some snow in June. And it's here that Mark Anthony first meets Cleopatra in that dramatic time when she comes up sailing on her barge dressed as Venus. So who was this man? Well, we see he's a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, this cosmopolitan city. He's familiar with Stoic philosophy. It's the center of Stoic philosophy at that time in the whole world. He's trained as a businessman. But, but if you're Jewish, why would you name your kid Saul, right? That guy, man, because he was from what tribe? And who was from Benjamin? Saul, the first king. So it's the most illustrious person to come out of Benjamin. And so they named their son Saul. However, Saul was also a Roman citizen. Now later on in the story we'll find that he was not just a Roman citizen, he was what? He was born a citizen, remember? guy, the, the centurion says, I paid a lot for my citizenship. How, I was born a citizen. How would a Jewish family living so far away from Jerusalem become Roman citizens that the son would be born a citizen? The local idea is that probably his family provided tents for the Roman army of Mark Anthony, and they bequeathed on him citizenship. All we know is, we don't know for sure, but we know he's born a citizen. And he had special rights because as a citizen, he had a U.S. passport, right? He could go anywhere. He could do anything. And then as a citizen, you couldn't be beaten without a trial. As a citizen, you couldn't be crucified. Quicker form of death would be decapitation. And so he had special privileges. And so Acts 22 verse 3 says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, this city of Jerusalem. I studied under, under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as many of you are today. And so now he's on trial and he says, I, I was brought up, I was born in Cilicia, but my father sent me here. I have to be careful. He's, I, I, he was sent to a special college, right? where the top scholar of the day, the top Pharisee, his name is Gamaliel, where he taught, and he was educated under his, his tutelage there in Jerusalem. And he says, I was trained in the law of our ancestors. Gamaliel, you might recall, was very hesitant about passing judgment on the Jesus movement, but his pupil was not. He didn't hesitate. He saw the threat that the heresy of the Nazarene sect brought to Judaism, and he was determined to root it out. And so 
He says that he was very zealous for God. He was active in identifying and ferreting out the Nazarene believers and purifying Judaism. What was his problem? What was his problem with a Nazarene sect? Well, it's very interesting. Later when Paul will write to the church of Corinth, he will explain what the problem is. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Why foolishness to Greeks? Well, you see, the Greeks believed that if God could be moved with empathy because of the human condition, then humans would have power over God. Therefore, they would be greater than God, so God can't have any feelings toward humans. So it's foolishness in philosophy to believe that. But it's not foolishness for, for Jews, it's a what? What is it? Right? What? It's a, why is it a stumbling block? And so the cross is a stumbling block for Jews. And so we go back to Deuteronomy and we see that Deuteronomy has a precept. Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who is hung on a tree is under a curse. That's what the law says. Now, let's go back to the story of Jesus and the authorities have brought Jesus before Pilate. And what does Pilate say? Well, before that, he says, you take him and judge him. And what do they say? We have no right to execute a man. Is that right? The Jewish people have no right to execute a man? What happened three and a half years later? What happened with Stephen? It took, they, they saw engineers, the deal, take him out. They stone him and kill him. But the authorities didn't want Jesus to be stoned, the Jewish method of capital punishment. They wanted him to be hung on a tree because the law said you'll be cursed if you're hung on a tree. And so they went to the authorities and had them pass it because that's the Roman method of capital punishment. And even to this day, the cross is a stumbling block to Jewish people because the law says you're cursed if you're hung on a tree. And so Saul is zealous for the, the teachings. He's zealous for the scriptures. And so he doesn't believe that. As a matter of fact, he gives us this testimony in Acts 26. All of this, by the way, was in your Sabbath school lesson, so I hope that uh, you've enjoyed the lesson. And, and uh, here we have it, I, Acts 26, verse 9. I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Saul's personal testimony, he was all in for uprooting the Nazarene sect. He recognized the threat it would bring to Judaism, and he was all in for purifying the sect of this misguided and deleted belief. He was zealous. He was a good man, but he was misguided. And so I want to pause and ask this question. What are you zealous for this morning? Ooh. What are you zealous for? He was zealous for purifying the church keeping the church pure. And it led him to eat up believers 
put some in prison, kill others. Oh, but you would never do that, would you? Well, we may not do it physically, but we can certainly do it with our words, our actions. Be careful what you're zealous for. When I was at Wildwood in the last century, back in the early 70s, Elder Frizee had a wonderful little saying that I loved, don't major in minors. Don't major. You know, there's a lot of things that we can be diverted into and little controversies we can be diverted into. Yesterday in our class, yesterday afternoon, we talked about witnessing in your neighborhood and, and, and we shared the verse that whatever the heart is full of, the mouth speaketh. Fill your heart with Jesus, right? And then your heart's gonna speak about that. There's a lot of interesting di diversions to get into. Don't major in minors. Major in sharing Jesus. And so Saul says that I cast my vote against them. What does that mean? Cast my vote. It leads some of us to believe that Saul was actually a member of the Sanhedrin and he had a vote in what the outcome would be and he voted to have them executed. Scripture doesn't say, but it seems reasonable that perhaps he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so he engineers this experience with Stephen, that beautiful testimony of Stephen in chapter 7. And, and remember what happens when he comes down? Stephen, after they respond negatively to what he's sharing, Stephen says something powerful in Acts chapter 7, verse 56. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, help me, standing at the right hand. Now, what does Scripture say when Jesus ascended into heaven? What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Is that right? And so when he ascends into heaven, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Well, what's he doing now? He's standing. What's happening? The first believer in my name is about to give up his life. <gasps> Can you imagine? And Stephen looks up. But, but it's not just that. What is Stephen quoting? Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I see the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. And they flip out. They say, blasphemy. They tear their robes because he's blaspheming. We think about Stephen being stoned. What a, can you imagine the magnitude of that moment? First believer. Later on, people are going to be martyred. They look back at that and they have courage from that. But let me ask you a question. You think there were any trumpets blowing in Jerusalem and Stephen got stoned? Do you think Stephen's family, let's just suppose he has a wife and kids, do you think that, that they thought it was a great thing when he got stoned? But we can see the other side of the story, can't we? You know what our job is? To trust whatever happens, right? We're on a journey. Good things will happen, bad things will happen, but we need to learn to trust whatever happens. And Stephen had learned to trust. His family might not have understood, but he's standing. How incredible. And then Stephen prays, verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Can you imagine resurrection morning? Stephen comes up out of the grave. 
what are you doing here, right? And Saul says, hey, Stevie, you'll never guess what happened. After you die, you'll ne- you won't believe it, right? He died. Saul's holding the garments. He's casting his vote. He's being executed. You'll never believe. And that's when I say, grandmas, you may never know the influence on your grandchildren. And guys, you may never know the influence on the people you work with. You know what? Our call is to be faithful, right? Our call is to walk along the way. Our call is to walk with joy with Jesus. Our call is to be faithful and leave it to God. Stephen will be shocked on resurrection morning. (laughs) What are you doing? And can you imagine that conversation? Because there was something about his face lit up like an angel that he could never shake. He could never shake. And I have to say, you know, I I had a, a lovely spiritual grandmother I was born here in Orlando, but I grew up in my teenage years in North Carolina, and she was a Bible worker in a little tiny church in Salisbury, North Carolina. And uh, if you've read that book of John Earnhardt, she's the grace that gave Bible studies to the young John Earnhardt, who was about 16, and Chris, his wife, was much younger, and they're about to have a baby, and the Adventist doctor said, you should take Bible studies and have your life turned around. So she was just this glowing witness all the time. And, and, and what an influence it can have, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, moms and dads, you know, don't, don't give up, don't give up. I tell you, if time lasts in our program, I'll tell you my story about what happened as a result of their prayers. But we will now look at Acts chapter 26, because he's so, he's trying to salve his conscience about what happened with Stephen, and so he says in Acts 26 verse 11, I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the the authority and commission of the chief priest. And so Damascus is 150 miles away, and we can see the road that he would go. We're going to trace that road because he's obsessed. He's trying to get out of his mind what had happened with Stephen, and now he's, he's walking. He's a Pharisee, probably walking by himself from the guards and not riding a horse, by the way. If he's riding a horse, he's going to be unclean, right? A horse is unclean. Sorry, I know a lot of you have horses, but if you're a Pharisee, you don't want to be riding an unclean horse. And so he's walking. Now the direct route is to go right up through the mountains, right up through Shechem and Samaria. You can kind of see the mountains there on the, on the map, Samaria, and then you kind of cut down. But you've got to go through the Samaritan area. And a Pharisee would not want to eat the food of Samaritans, those despised people. And so they would walk down to Jericho. They'd go two to three days out of their way to go north to avoid Samaria. And so as he walks down to Jericho, he's obsessed, but Holy Spirit's convicting him. I wonder, do you think he had interrogated that short guy down in Jericho? What was the short guy's name? Zacchaeus. You think he had interrogated Zacchaeus? And then he's got to cross the river. And he crosses the river there, and that's where John the Baptist was baptizing, Bethany beyond the Jordan. And, and, and I'm sure he's just saying, how in the world could this son of a priest be taken in by this base heresy? Can you see? And what's the Holy Spirit doing? Convicting, convicting. He's trying to shake it. And then he's got to walk up the Jordan River, and he comes to the Sea of Galilee. And as he goes around the Sea of Galilee, he's got to go right through the town of Magdala. That's where Interstate 95 goes, right through, called the Great Trunk Road, the BMRs. He, he goes right through Magdala. Had he interviewed her? Does she still hold on to her crazy belief that, a, that some guy named Jesus could be killed and come back to life? He's just shaking his head. And in my mind, I like to imagine that he then comes around 
to Capernaum. And there in Capernaum, he may pause for the Sabbath. And if he did, did he teach in the synagogue? Does he think about all those stories that happened there? Can you imagine the incredible stories? Who was the pastor of this place? Yeah, Jairus. What happened to it? What's the story of Jairus? His daughter died, and Jesus brought her back to life. And, and, and by the way, who, who built the place? A Roman centurion who said, don't bother coming, Lord. Just what? Speak the word. Speak the word. I'm a man of authority. And, and can you imagine the first Sabbath in the gospel story that Jesus is, is presenting in the synagogue? You know what happened? It was right there. Remember what happened? Something that I hope doesn't happen this morning. A guy came running down the middle aisle. Jesus Nazarene. Satan throws a demon-possessed man at him. Jesus speaks the word. Saul familiar with these stories? I just imagine as he, he shirks it all off and he's, he leaves the Sea of Galilee 700 feet below sea level, he starts going up the hills, ascending the hills. He skirts around Mount Hermon because he's on a mission to go to Damascus. But as he walks, he ponders, he thinks, how could Stephen pray, Lord, forgive them for what they're doing? Wow. What was it about Jesus that so transformed Stephen? Was he aware that Jesus said the same thing about his executioners? He approaches the city. Can you imagine his heart rate increasing? 150-mile walk. Any of you been on a 150-mile walk lately? 150-mile <laughs> walk. He gets there. He's on the hills of, overlooking Damascus. Now, Damascus is the largest oasis in the world. All, it doesn't really rain there. You have the water that comes from the snows and the, from the mountains and so on. But it doesn't rain very much there. We're the largest oasis in the world. He gets there, and, and he's excited because he's zealous to root out the Nazarenes from, this, from the, the, the sect of the Jews, the Nazarene sect from the Jews, and get rid of this cancer that's, surround, that's spreading. And as he gets there, he's overlooking the city. What happens? Remember what happened? A light brighter than the noonday sun flashes. And he says, oh, that was interesting, right? No, what does he do? Falls to the ground. He falls to the ground. Holy Spirit has been pricking his conscience for a 150-mile walk, and now the Holy Spirit powerfully hits him. It all comes together, and he falls down. And so we read the words there in Acts chapter 26, verse 12. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so all religious heart has him on a horse, but I doubt he's on a horse. doesn't say he's on a horse, but he falls down. And, and, and the other men, they see the light, but, or they hear the voice, but they, they don't know what it says. Why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against God. Now, as we were filming the series on Paul, I'm thinking, Lord, this is a hard text to understand because the King James is even a bit stranger. How are we going to ask, Lord, we need, a, we need to have an ox herder. And so there's a little clip I'm going to ask them to play right now, a little bit of audio with this clip, if, it, if we can pick up that audio. And uh, it's about a road, actually a Roman road, that Paul walked on in the second missionary journey. Maybe it won't play, but uh, there's a road, and this road was very special. And 
there we go. This road is very, very special. It's actually a Roman road that Paul and Barnabas walked on. We, I'd seen this in a book called Biblical Anatolia. I went up and looked for it 25 miles north of Tarsus. I found it in the foothills below the Cilician Gates. And we were filming and then this guy came by and he walked off into the sunset. I got back and they said, was that an actor that you had? And I said, no, that's the guy that lives out there. And it became the signature shot of our series in the footsteps of Paul. And he doesn't know how famous he is because people see him around the world. I've been praying, Lord, we need somebody to illustrate an ox herder for the series. Would you believe after the guy walks that way? And here he is on the screen talking to me. A nice guy. I tried to explain where I was from and what I was doing, and he didn't speak any English. And in Tarsus, can you see they wear their pants? The, you know, it's, it's kind of pre-hip-hop. You know, the crotch comes down to the knees. Interesting stories about that. But anyway, a, a very nice guy. Didn't speak any English, and he walked off. And I was praying for an ox herder. And you believe after he walked into the sunset, look what came down the road the other direction. I hadn't even told the camera crew about it, but. But fortunately, the oxen came and, you know, they kind of made fun of me getting surrounded by oxen in some of the outtakes. But after they passed by, look what happened. You see our guy? What's he got in his hand? He's got a goad. And it's got a sharp point on it called a prick. And he's pricking them, right? He's guiding them. And so the Holy Spirit, Saul, Saul, it's hard to kick against the pricks or hard to kick against the goads. Moms, it's hard for our children to kick against the Holy Spirit. You know, to be lost, you've got to fight the strongest power in the universe, the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is trying to do what? To lead you to repentance. But you know, when we're praying for people, just like Saul, they resist, right? He's resisting, he's fighting it. Don't give up. Keep praying, right? Keep on praying. And so our guy comes by with the goads. They had also put these little sharp points on oxen carts, and they put a young oxen in there, and they'd put him into the, the harness, and he'd, be, he'd kick that cart, and guess what? He wouldn't kick it the second time because he kicked that little sharp stick with the point on it, right? And so the Lord said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Holy Spirit is trying to lead him to repentance and he's struggling with that. And so Saul cries out and says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The Holy Spirit is leading him to repentance. Well, let's read the next verse. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. Can you imagine? He gets up. He's overwhelmed by the theophany, and now he gets up and cannot see. Can you imagine the fanfare he must have left from Jerusalem? He's on a mission from the chief priests, going to Damascus, a prestigious city. And now can you imagine the next verse, as they led him by the hand, blind, into Damascus. And for three days he did not eat or drink anything. That's actually a Roman gate. And that Roman gate opens onto the Via Recta, the straight street. And he's led down there and he's put into a, an inn on Straight Street in the house of, Ju of Judas, remember? And there he sits in the darkness, blind. Well, I was going to tell you a story 
about my first time on that street. Maybe I have a moment, I'll tell you that story. It's an interesting story. I was on a solo journey from Athens to Damascus in 1988, and I got to Damascus, and I went to the Umayyad Mosque. The Umayyad Mosque at one time was the largest mosque in the world. It was a church of Justinian, and it was converted into a mosque after the Muslims conquered Damascus. And they had a very interesting minaret out there. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. But inside of this church was the head of John the Baptist. And so when you go there today, guess what? There's a shrine for the John the Baptist's head. And Muslims come from around the world. We can see it on the screen. They come from around the world and they pray there at the shrine that has the head of John the Baptist in it. Very interesting. Well, I'd heard about the minaret, and we'll go to the next slide. The minaret actually is the southwest minaret, and what's interesting is Muslims believe that Jesus will return in the sky and land on that minaret in Damascus when he comes a second time. Yeah, interesting, 150 miles from Jerusalem. And so they believe he'll come there and land on that minaret. And so I was trying to get pictures of that. When you go into a mosque, you've got to take your shoes off. Now, I had some Saucony running shoes, and they've been up Mount Olympus, they've been up Mount Sinai, and they've been up the Mount of Olives, and they've been up the mountain over Damascus. And I thought, I'm going to bronze these shoes. You know, these shoes have been everywhere. And I came back, and guess what happened? Shoes had been stolen. <laughs> so I said, at least I have the memories, Lord. Well, now I'm shoeless. So a guy is giving, uh, he's speaking in English, it's being translated into Russian to a tour group. When he was done with his tour, I went over and said, can you, I just want to make sure I've got the right minaret out here, the southwest minaret. And, and so we became friends and he found out that my shoes had been stolen. He said, you must come to my house and I'll give you a pair of sandals to fly back to New York in. And guess what street he lived on? Straight Street. <laughs> That's right. And so Saul is there in Straight Street. And... Uh, he is there and he's sitting inside in the darkness. And so we look at our text uh, here in Acts. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. What? I know who that guy is. He's come here to ferret out the believers. He's come, you know, right, to get our names. I can't go and do that. He'll kill me. He'll arrest me, take me back to Jerusalem. What? And so he goes on and says, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument. Here's our memory text. My chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Ananias, what was Ananias? What did it say in the very first part of the text? He's a what? A disciple. And what do disciples do? They do what their Lord asks, right? And so he goes. And can you imagine? We have the next verse. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine? What do you think Ananias and the believers had been praying in Damascus? May, may his bus run off the road, right? May, may pirates attack him and kill him. Do you think they had the courage to actually pray for what God had in mind? I doubt it. And when he comes in, they don't believe it. They were bracing for the enforcer. 
And so he goes and he prays. And the next verse says, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And by the way, it wasn't just physical scales. They were spiritual scales. Spiritual scales of misunderstanding Bible verses. Right? He was misguided. There there was a zeal that had to fall away because he was very zealous. It was just misguided and misdirected. Now he can see physically and spiritually. And he says, now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. My first time in Damascus, I took that picture in 1988. I had pastors there around 1999. And I told our young tour guide that uh, I wanted to go on Sabbath afternoon by the river and do teaching for my pastors, you know, to get them reoriented on what we've been seeing in Syria. And the young guy said, what river? I said, you know, the river that flows down to the middle of town, you know, it goes right down. He had never seen that river because they now use all the water for drinking. The city is so big. But the next verse is so incredible, Acts 9, verse 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He begins preaching. Can you imagine? This is the guy who was to to root out the Nazarenes, and now he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. The enforcer is now teaching this. The people are perplexed. Is this a trick? Is it a ruse? They're just trying to get our names so they can arrest us later on? What's going on? And I love the next verse, verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Now, sometimes we say Christ like it's Jesus' last name. Forgive me for saying this. We say Jesus Christ like it's, you know, first name, last name. What does Christ mean? Messiah. Messiah. He's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. How? From the scriptures. What was he using? Romans? Matthew? He was using the Hebrew scriptures because there was no New Testament. Let's fill our minds with the Hebrew scriptures so that we too can share with Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, it gets hot on Damascus. He slips away, he goes out into Arabia. He spends three years there pondering, pondering. And now all the rabbinical training that he has comes into focus as he sees Jesus as the Messiah. And so we'll skip over that verse. Maybe he went to Petra, maybe he went to Palmyra. We don't know where he went, but now all the rabbinical training from Gamaliel focuses in on Jesus being the Messiah. And then we're going to skip down, Debbie, to after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. It gets so hot when he comes back. He's preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. The Jewish people are so baffled that they go to King Aretas and they say, do away with this guy. And they lock the city gates. And can you believe the very people he came to destroy? Their hands are now used to deliver Saul. And he escapes and he goes to Jerusalem. Can you imagine the hallelujah moment when he gets to the general conference in Jerusalem, right? You you know, they sent me out to do this and now I'm coming back. Can you imagine what he's expecting? The welcome? I mean, is is it the most significant event that's happened since the resurrection of Jesus in the church? You bet. This rabbi trained by Gamaliel. But notice what it says in the Bible. When he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. 
Can you imagine the shock? Hadn't they heard the good news? Wasn't the internet up? <laughs> were there any phone calls? But they shun him. They don't believe his conversion is real. Has that ever happened to you? You know, folks, let's have our eyes open to who's God bringing to our communities, right? Don't shun them. Reach out and love them. Reach out and love them. And so the next verse says, but, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. It must have hurt to be rejected and shunned like that. Who comes up? What's the guy's name? Barnabas. What does Barnabas mean? Son of encouragement. Because he was an ASI member. He sold his property and he gave everything to the believers, right? And they divided it and there was, there was stuff to go around. And so, and, and they nicknamed him. No longer are you called Barnabas, you're going to be the son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph, right? He was a uh, from a Levite family in Cyprus, but, but no longer will you be called Joseph, you'll be called son of encouragement. Are you a son of encouragement? Are you a daughter of encouragement? So many discouraging words are spoken among us. In our churches, there's almost so many discouraging words. I want to be a son of encouragement, don't you? Can you think back to people who were encouragers in your life? You know, I had a grandma, if I wanted to eat chocolate for breakfast, she said, that's great. <laughs> she would encourage me, encourage me, prayed for me, tried to tell me a better way, and it made a difference. Well, our next verse says, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And after Barnabas vouches for Saul, Saul's brought into the community, and he's preaching there, and he spends 15 days, and it's exciting, and then he goes back up to Tarsus where he stays until his old friend Barnabas comes up and gets them, and then they go off on their first missionary journey, or they go down to Antioch, and then they ultimately go on their first missionary journey, and the church is revolutionized by what they're doing. And so he speaks boldly in the name of the Lord. And so Saul would later write to his son in the gospel, Timothy, he would write and say, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst or the chief. No matter how good Saul was later, no matter what he accomplished, he still remembered one thing, his roots. I am the chief of sinners. He wasn't majoring in minors, was he? That's the issue. We're all from the same cloth. Now, I love the story of Saul, his dramatic conversion. Some of you read in the program about my conversion. And as I said earlier, I, I kind of grew up around Adventism. I had a grandmother that said, if you'll finish Pisgah, I'll buy you a Harley. Pretty good deal, right? Unfortunately, I got a one-way ticket to jail, busted for marijuana in 1970 and uh, couldn't get back into my little school in North Carolina because they didn't want drug offenders in the school, even though I was a young adult. And uh, so I started a whole different direction down a different road and became very, very involved in the counterculture and the flow of drugs for our small town in Salisbury, which is where there are more millionaires in that county than any county in North Carolina because of food lion stock. <laughs> Interesting, there's a little tiny store there. 
And uh, I was going a whole different direction, but I had a grandma who was praying for me, right? My grandma was praying for me. And, and while I could reject the Christianity of most Christians I knew and say, oh, in that day, some of you are old like I am, the plastic society, it's not really genuine, it's not real. I could reject that, or I rejected it anyway, but I couldn't reject, I knew hers was genuine, and she was praying for me. And I'll never forget, went to a lot of rock and roll festivals. It's amazing what doesn't get out of your mind. I did all kinds of things that I'm not proud of, but I, I wouldn't open my eyes in prayer and I wouldn't eat pork. <laughs> Shoot drugs, but I wouldn't do that other. And so I went to see what I thought was the greatest show on earth, the Rolling Stones toured in 1972. It was in Charlotte, North Carolina, July the 6th. And I'll never forget what happened because Stevie Wonder played. Now I was taking a lot of hallucinogenic drugs. Stevie Wonder played and they moved the equipment and, and I saw, I don't know what was there, but I saw two serpents painted on the floor. And I thought, oh no. Even Mick Jagger knows there's a devil. And then I heard a voice saying, yes, I'm real. And you sold your soul to me. You've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. Heavy. Well, we, they always clap for an encore, and the roadie came out and said, thank you, we're through, and the devil said, and you're through. You have to die tonight for your sins. I'm a sinner, no doubt about it. Well, my whole group left, and I hate to say it, I was driving, and so I drove our group back out to the farm, and they partied, and I pondered, and the next day I went to my grandma's house. She had those old Conflict of the Ages series with the pictures. I was so spaced out, I couldn't, all I could do was kind of thumb through the pictures, and I ran across a picture of Jesus speaking to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember what he's doing? He's stepping on the head of the serpent. I got a little bit, maybe he's stronger than the serpent. Well, I kind of verbalized something to Grandma about what had happened, and she gave me the Desire of Ages and took it down to Atlanta, where I took a friend home. And while I was there, I started reading, and I remember reading that beautiful quote, Jesus was treated as we deserve to be treated, that we might be treated as he deserved to be treated. He was condemned for our sins, in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness, and by his stripes we are healed. And I said, wow, if that's what you're like, I want to get to know you. So I gave my heart to Jesus there and went back. And uh, anyway, uh, went back and had one last party. And my best friend, who was 40 years old, an African-American guy with a nose ring in North Carolina in 1972, and he said, you can't get away from it, can you? It's got you, doesn't it? I said, oh, Lord, please help me. Last time I did that. So I just want to say, grandmas, grandpas, moms, dads, children praying for your parents, don't give up, right? God did an incredible thing on the road to Damascus in the life of Saul. He can do the same in your family. He did it in mine. He did it in my life, I know, and he can do it in, in your family's life too. Don't give up. Keep praying for them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the incredible miracle that happened on the road to Damascus, how you spoke to this Jewish rabbi trained by Gamaliel and how that his life was turned around. Thank you for doing that in my life. Give these folks courage, I pray, as they pray for their children and loved ones and family, that they too might find that joy and peace in Jesus that we have. It is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www asiministries.org or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org